0: Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, the university's professor, Stephen Payne, discusses how his research combines an understanding of the human mind with the design of interactive systems.
1: Stephen trained as a psychologist, earning his BSc and Diploma in Professional Studies from Loughborough University, and he was appointed as a research officer in the Social and Applied Psychology unit at Sheffield University, And there he was awarded his PhD in 1985 for his work on Task Action Grammars, a model of the mental representation of task languages in human-computer interaction. And this title, I think, was indicative of Stephen's future work at the interface of cognitive psychology and computer science. And applications are fundamental to such work and Stephen's research is founded on a breadth of experience. He's worked in industry at British Telecom Research Laboratories, Logica BV in Rotterdam, and IBM's Thomas Watson Research Centre in Yorktown Heights, New York. Stephen has held consultancies or visiting positions with Xerox, Teleferket, the Swedish telecom company, and the Defence Scientific Advisory Council. As an academic, Stephen has held positions of lecturer at Lancaster University and professor at Cardiff University, in both cases in psychology departments. He spent time as a professor in the School of Informatics at Manchester University and at the Manchester Business School. We were very pleased to be able to bring Stephen to the University of Bath in 2008, appointing him to a chair in human-centric systems in the Department of Computer Science. Looking through the titles of some of Stephen's 80-plus publications, I found the topics have a certain familiarity. How do you learn from skim reading? The effectiveness of working under time pressure. Understanding calendar use. So I'm sure we're all going to be captivated by the insights (laughs) Stephen can give us as he expands the formal study of such topics. It's my great pleasure to invite Professor Stephen Payne to deliver his inaugural lecture on the Cognitive Science of Human-Computer Interaction. Stephen. Thanks very much, Chris.
0: Uh, Thank you very much, Chris, and thanks everyone for coming. I I really appreciate it. Um, Hans Eisenk, uh, a rather notorious clinical and personality psychologist, says in his autobiography that whenever he's feeling uh, short of ideas, whenever he was feeling short of ideas and suffering from a little bit of writer's block, he would go back and read some of his own early papers. I think arrogance actually is a good trait in biographers, autobiographers.
1: Um,
0: I haven't followed his advice until preparing for this talk. Um, I have followed his advice for this talk, and what I'm going to do actually is look back over my relatively recent research career, and describe the work that I've done with these colleagues listed here. I'll try to uh, name them when I describe the work that they've done with me. Um, But uh, if I forget, I'll try desperately not to forget uh, Juliet Richardson and Jeffrey Duggan, because they're in the audience. (laughs) Um, My theme tonight is that, uh, although most cognitive science has been the study of the unaided mind, The truth of the matter is that the mind and its artefacts are incredibly closely connected. I'm going to try to argue that artefacts are always supporting the mind's work, and in so doing, they challenge and even transform mental life. Uh, In making that case, I'm going to draw particularly on two kinds of uh, relation. The relation between internal and external memories, uh, and the relation between planning and acting in the world. I'm going to begin with some work that I did with Hans-Jörg Neth on simple arithmetic. Um, The very mundane task that we gave our participants was to add a list of numbers. Some participants had a pencil and paper and others didn't. There are various versions of this experiment. Some did it on a computer screen with various various uh, facilities to mark the numbers as they added. This guy actually used a bizarre strategy, which would take me too long to uh, explain. So I'm just putting it up there as a sort of raw bit of data. Um, What I'm interested in exploring with you briefly is that when people are given this task... They readily, or at least often, depart from the natural linear ordering of the numbers, uh, and I'm going to uh, explore why and under what circumstances they do that. To, to do that more readily, let me just take a little idealized list of numbers here uh, and ask the question, how do people tend to add a list of this kind? Um, well, here are three if you like, strategies. Uh, The first is the straightforward one, and you can identify the strategies by the uh, running total that they're asked to call out or write down, depending on the particular experiment. The linear strategy gives you running totals of 2, 5, 6, 13, 17. But people sometimes don't do that. They depart to take advantage, for example, of what Hans and I decided to call pairs, a pair of numbers that adds to a round number. So if if you exploited that uh, aspect of the display here, you'd say 2, then you take the 7 and 3, 12, 13, 17. Or you might do a similar but slightly different thing and use a complement. That is, a a number that brings your running total to a round number. In which case, you'd go 2, 5, 6, and notice that, 4, 10, 17. Two questions. Why do people do that? Uh, and why do they do it more if they're given a pencil and paper? Well, the first question, why do people do that? Well, it turns out, uh, and this was a discovery that Hans and I made, that pairs and complements are added faster than equivalent-sized other pairs of numbers. Now, I think that's somewhat mysterious. It's, it's more mysterious, perhaps, than the most established finding in mental ar- which is the problem size effect. People are quicker to add 3 plus 4 than they are to add 3 plus 5 or 3 plus 6. Even that's a little bit difficult to understand, actually. There are lots of controversial theories about why that should be true when surely both are just a simple matter of fact retrieval. But it's even more mysterious as to why people should uh, find adding numbers towards a sum of 10 faster than numbers that don't quite reach 10. So, in fact, this goes against the problem size effect in some cases. You're faster to report that 3 plus 7 is 10 than you are to report that 3 plus 6 is 9, counter to the well-established problem size effect. Uh, I I suppose if I'm brutally honest, we don't know why that is. But here's here's my explanation as it stands at the moment. When you're faced with a number that goes beyond a decade, 5 plus 9 then you're inclined to say, well, that's 5 plus 5 plus an extra 4. You decompose the problem so as to to accommodate the fact that sums beyond the decade are really easy. 10 plus 4 is 14. It's the easiest addition you could possibly have. So perhaps you somehow decompose numbers that go past the boundary to take advantage of that. Whatever. Uh, Well, not whatever. That seems to me actually interesting (laughs) in this particular way. It shows that the base 10 is having this kind of subtle effect on the way we do mental arithmetic, as well as the obvious effects. It shows that through this process of decomposition and practice, you get this really peculiar filtering through of uh, an external representation for numbers on the way that mental arithmetic is processed. So it makes my point that the mind and its artifacts are more closely connected than you might think unless you looked hard enough. Um, The second question I raised was why do people uh, exploit the differences and the difficulty of sums so as to depart from linear ordering more when they're given a pencil? Well, I think the answer to that is fairly obvious when you think about it. If you're going to depart from linear order as you're adding uh, a list of numbers, then you're imposing on yourself an extra memory load. Which numbers have I added so far? becomes harder to keep track of. Um, but if you're given a pencil, or if it's on a computer, and you're given a way of marking the display that you're working with, you can exploit that to overcome that memory load. So um, that simple example has introduced several of my uh, my themes here. I want to be—I'll be repeatedly claiming that agents' behaviour is adaptive, <coughs> given the local structure of costs and benefits. That people adapt their strategies to the. Uh, their own abilities, to the relative difficulty of different processes, to the availability of interactive tools, and so on. So that when you're designing technologies for people to use, you're designing or at least pushing strategies for them to exploit in the use of those technologies. Um, That idea of using pencil to mark where you're up to in the process is... um, is a standard idea. We, we write on the world so as to uh, bring an external memory to bear and improve our internal memory's task. Um, it's not limited to working memory, what psychologists call working memory, keeping track of running processes as you go. Uh, there are some obvious examples, and I'm going to go through a couple of them here. Here's, here's a photograph of my own diary. Um, uh, Chris mentioned I've done some work on understanding how people use calendars uh, and it might interest you to wonder why I'm still using a pencil and paper uh, diary rather than a computer-based diary. Well, it's because according to my analysis, computer-based diaries are hopeless. Now, uh, I know that, uh, s- that some of you enjoy using them, but let me try to explain the ways in which I think they're hopeless. Uh, one, one, I think, is a rather obvious point, but it's that The various distinctions that I want to make among my intentions and plans and goals and dates are not well represented by most computer calendars. So with a very simple device of writing something's big versus small and scrolling beside them and putting asterisks beside them, I can represent the distinction between deadlines versus appointments. I can represent the distinction between important things and trivial things and so on. That's a pretty obvious Weakness in most computer calendars, strength in the straightforward technology. The other thing that I I want to claim is better about paper calendars is a a rather more subtle point, and it's this. In order to add a new entry in a paper calendar, you can't help but rehearse many of your previous entries. The whole mechanism for finding a slot in your diary involves you... uh, browsing through the diary, turning pages, for example, to get to the page you're interested in, looking through for spaces on the page where you might write something. And as you're doing that, you rehearse your currently existing intentions. So there's this to and fro between the external memory in your calendar and your internal memory for your intentions and plans. And that happens to a certain extent with some computer diaries, but it is definitely avoided in many of their design features. So, for example, you can instantly go to open spaces, you can directly access particular days without flicking through the pages that lead up to them and so on. Uh, I come back to this picture every so often because this is a guy who's uh, busy raking but then stops to pause for a moment and think. Um, I'm going to... um, make another point about memory now, about external memory. And it's that these examples that I've shown you are fairly routine. Um, People put things in the world to keep track of where they're up to. They put things in the world to remember future intentions. Um, But it's also true that I think, especially when one looks at interaction with computers, that some of our skill relies on memories that are external to a surprising extent. We leave things in the world that one might expect a skilled person to remember. Uh, So, for example, when you're browsing the web, you'll have a browser open. Let's say it's Explorer, or let's say it's uh, Firefox, whatever it is. Think of your own. And all the time you're browsing, at the top of the screen, there will be a top-level menu of of commands, whatever one wants to call them, the top-level menu of words. And it's there whenever you're browsing the web. But it's very hard to recall what those words are and in what order. Most people can't do that accurately. Some of you may be able to, and you can get somewhere along. I mean, you're all trying to think of it now. Uh, And it's surprisingly difficult, given how many hours you spend staring at it. You don't just stare at it either, right? You interact with it. You interact with it well. Guy doesn't interact with it. Everyone else interacts with it. But you can't remember what's there. You leave the memory in the world. I think that has profound implications for the design of those kind of interfaces. It's not a new observation, however. As early as 1967, uh, John Morton studied telephone operators who used this dial. Isn't this nostalgic for those of us (laughs) of a certain age? Not only are there numbers, but there are letters which mean something for the dialing of exchanges. And they're always there. And if you're a telephone operator in the 1960s, you have to use this thing for hours every day. But when you take the telephone operators aside, as Morton did, and ask them to recall which numbers go with which letters, they get it wrong. So I'm going to claim, then, that uh, a lot of skill at the user interface is recognition-based rather than recall-based. And furthermore, I'm going to now delve a little bit into the psychology of recognition and make a a more refined point. Um, Recognition memory, according to psychologists, comes in two varieties. Um, The first is called recollection, when I look at Juliet's face in the, um, in the audience, Juliet Richardson, who's on the first slide, and whose experiment I'm about to describe, uh, I can recognize her, uh, and I can re- recollect lots of things about her, of course. We used to work together. There are people I see on campus, and my first thought is, gosh, that person's familiar, but I have no idea why. Sometimes recognition is that mere feeling of familiarity. Um, Now, whenever I've heard psychologists talk about that distinction between recollection and familiarity, they've used that example, (laughs) Um, the example of the face that is familiar, but you can't recollect anything about it. Um, And one of the things one might ask, given that that's the only example that seems to come to mind to the people who are interested in this, apart from words in a word list in an experiment, is, well, what's the point of familiarity? What does it do for you when it tells you so little Well, I'm going to tell you that what it does for you is allow you to solve certain problems. And I'm going to show you that by reporting an experiment that Juliet Richardson-Andrew Howes and I did. And I hope I can do this both quickly enough and coherently enough to fit in with the talk. Here's what we did. Uh, We looked at some websites. Um, Here's um, an abstracted map of the uh, link structure of the Science Museum's website. It's idealized and abstracted for the sake of our experiment. Um, Here's a similar one for the Kew Botanic Gardens website, and we had another couple that we used in these experiments. One was a classical music site, and the other was the Museum of Film and Photography. Um, Participants in the experiment, just like browsers of these websites, never saw this map, say, of the Kew Botanic Gardens website. Um, Instead, they were shown how to navigate for particular goals by choosing links through the website. And I'll explain that in more detail. Here's an experimental method, quickly. Let's just take one of the websites. First of all, you read some introductory stuff about the website. Then you're shown how to find a particular thing in the website by being... um, forced to click on certain labels one at a time. The labels are red, actually, in the experiment, and you can't click on the other one. So here's a screen from that sequence. You're in the Q Botanic Gardens website. You're trying to find out where the Arctic plants are kept. If you've got a choice between heritage and conversion, you should click on heritage. Let's just see if that's... If you can see that here, this actually is the bold way through this website. So here's the the choice point between conservation and heritage. Okay. And then you do that for you know, several websites, and the people go off and do something else. And then you bring them back, and you give them the goal again, and you say, okay, try and find where the Arctic plants are kept. And you put them at a particular choice point that may be one on the route, in which case you want them to choose the right label, or maybe off the route, in which case the correct thing to do is to hit back up. And what you find is, let's just take the example of the choice points that are off the route. What you find is they're less likely to hit back up correctly if the words on the forward choices are words that were pre-exposed in that first paragraph of text. Uh, that means that they're not recollecting where those words came from. Their choices are being determined by their pre-exposure to those words making the words more familiar here. Familiarity is guiding their problem solving even though it's useless to that problem solving. In a sense, we're sort of tricking them to use familiarity in a way that in this particular case isn't valid. But actually, they're really, really clever in the way they use familiarity. So another way of doing the experiment is instead of exposing them to the words uh, accidentally, as it were, in this introductory text, what you do is you show them several routes through each menu. So imagine you show them six routes through the Kew Gardens menu, but only two routes through the Science Museum menu, and now later you have a choice in each of those menus. If the choice point is, comes from the menu in which you've only been shown two routes and it's a familiar choice point, well, familiarity is a pretty good guide if you've only been shown two routes. And you remember you've only been shown two routes, so you should be more influenced by familiarity there than in the case where there's been six routes. Because if something's familiar but you've been all over it, well, what does familiarity mean? And actually, people are sensitive enough to obey the prediction there. They're less influenced by familiarity in menus where familiarity is less likely to be a guide to the right way to behave. I think that's a pretty subtle example of people adapting their strategy to the available information from their experience during an interactive process. Oops, I've gone ahead ahead of myself here. Okay, now there's a couple of ways in which that task... The task of navigating through a website, for example, by clicking on one link, then another, then another. Or of navigating through a menu by clicking on the top-level menu item, then the second-level menu item, then the third, and so on. There's a couple of ways in which that task, although I think it's a very widespread kind of display-based task at the user interface, is somewhat degenerate. Um, It's it's simplification in a a strange way of ordinary problem-solving. Uh, Actually, I think there's two ways in which it's a little bit degenerate. The first is uh, accidental, almost, and the second is uh, important. The accidental way allows me to introduce an important concept, however. If you were really navigating the Science Museum website, then you wouldn't have an embedded backup button on every page. You'd use your browser's version of the back button, probably. And indeed, studies of web search with browsers show that the back button is the most commonly used navigational tool. Uh, but that's despite the fact that people have, typically, studies have shown, a very impoverished model of the way the back button actually behaves. Um, I'm sure many people in this audience won't have such an impoverished model. Um, but the back butdle, the back butdle, the, back, the back button that's what it's called the back button, um, maintains a stack of previously visited uh, pages, which chops off branches. So if you're at the home page and you follow a link to page one, then you press back to get back to the home page and follow a link to page two, page one is no longer available via the back button. It doesn't matter, typically, because you... I mean, actually, sometimes you trip over this, and you think, oh, why can't I get back there? Um, Because what happens is that all the branch that you've backed across gets popped off the top of the stack, uh, and it's no longer on that stack, You can no longer reach it with the back button. That's an exact example of what uh, psychologists and human computer interaction specialists mean when they talk about people having mental models of the devices that they use. A mental model that explains the back button's operation is of this stack in which all branching structures are thrown away. Um, People can use the back button without having that model, however. Um, so that's one, one way in which the task that I've just described was oversimplified, I think. The second way in which the task was oversimplified was that unless you know the map, which I showed you but mentioned I didn't show the participants, you can't do any look-ahead at all. You're reduced on the first exposure to a menu or the first exposure to a website with links to being a stimulus-response machine. Here is, my, here is my current situation... And I've got to choose between these options for what I do next. But I don't really know what's going to happen when I choose them, except for what clues I've got from the semantics of the words. Um, Now, human beings are not stimulus response machines. The the founding idea in cognitive science, almost, was that people plan in order to act. They look ahead through their problem spaces in order to make uh, decisions of what actions to take now. And in my next study, I'm going to worry about that. Um, this is a very well-known puzzle. It's been widely used in artificial intelligence uh, and quite widely used in the cognitive psychology of problem solving. Um, it's also been of interest, considerable interest to some mathematicians, um, who I'll mention very briefly. Um, in this version, it's called the 8 puzzle. There's, it has a big sister called the 15 puzzle, and you can guess what that looks like. Um, uh, and you've got to, you, you might choose an arbitrary goal state. Uh, this, this is one roughly sensible one because it's a kind of memorable configuration of the tiles. And an arbitrary start state. This one is actually would take you 17 moves if you were brilliant to transform the start state to the goal state by sliding the squares. You're all familiar with this puzzle, I think. Um, Here's an interesting little bit of mathematics about the puzzle. Uh, Exactly half the possible permutations can be reached by sliding. Um, This this, this has led... I I tried to look for proofs of that. Um, Some of you probably can work them out yourself. Um, but in looking for proofs, I discovered two, two interesting uh, little bits of history which I can't resist sharing with you. First, uh, this puzzle made a fortune for a man called Sam Lloyd in America. Um, this story is told in Simon Singh's... And it's nice to give Simon Singh a bit of publicity at the moment, isn't it? In Simon Singh's book, Fermat's Last Theorem. Um, he marketed it with a goal state that was impossible and a prize for reaching that goal state. <laughs> And it became the Rubik's Cube of uh, Victorian-era America, apparently, with stories in the press of people giving up their jobs to try and win this prize. Um, the first proof that I could find, and I have a photocopy of this paper. It's very brief, so brief that I couldn't understand it. It was by a chap called Peter Guthrie Tate, uh, a professor of mathematics at the University of Edinburgh, writing in 1880. And this isn't funny, but I, I can't resist telling you it because it just shows how far we've come as a society, I think. In the course of, a, of briefly exposing this proof, Professor Tate sees it fit to say that following um, the advice of his colleague, Crum Brown, which, nice of him to acknowledge his colleague, Crum Brown, he will refer to the normal arrangements as Aryan and their perversions as Semitic. <laughs> It's a convenient—it's a convenient label for talking about this stuff. Anyway, amazing, right? Um. Uh, yes, eighteen eighty. Yeah. Um, okay. Nineteen eighty—that would have been seriously worrying. Anyway, now you can see, looking at this puzzle, that it's a, a little bit different from traversing a website. You can look ahead now. Um, but you can't look ahead very perfectly. It's, you know, The earliest AI planning systems actually took a problem like this and did them in their heads and then <laughs> reeled off the moves. Um, but people don't do that if you give them this puzzle. They start moving before they know exactly where they're going. Uh, that isn't surprising. Um, In fact, they're inclined to move a little bit too much, I would argue. And uh, the experiment I want to very quickly report shows that. What we did with this puzzle was presented to people on a computer with two different user interfaces. Um, The first user interface was a very straightforward one. You sat there and you hit the number on the keypad of the tile you wanted to move. So staring at the start state there, you might hit 8 and then 5. That's one user interface. The second user interface was, uh, I think you might argue, worse. In order to move the 8 tile, for example, you'd have to hit the enter key, type in move, then number 8, then hit return. It's a brilliantly uh, cunning interface. This is work done with Kenton O'Hara. Um, in this one experiment, I'll just report you the results from one experiment here. Uh, what happened was that people had either the low-cost interface or the high-cost interface uh, for five trials. And then they transferred, all of them transferred to the same interface, which I think is pretty low-cost, a direct manipulation interface where you drag the, drag the tiles in order to move them. Uh, and here's what happens if you, if you report the average data. Um, the low-cost people take many, many more moves to solve the puzzle than the high-cost people. And when they move to a new puzzle, uh, when they move, well, a new puzzle as well, but when they move to a new interface, that difference is maintained. So they've learned... The people with the high-cost interface have been slowed down to the extent that they've thought more about it. I think that the cover story here is not hard to understand, but the extent of the difference is... I think, quite interesting. So the cover story is that if you've got a lousy interface, every move really matters. When you've got a simple interface, you can try and solve the problem by trial and error to a greater extent. Uh, and what's uh, impressive is that you learn more when you're trying harder. It's a little bit like the well-known depth of processing effect, but I think it's, well, I think it's more interesting. I would say that, wouldn't I? Um, now, the trouble with this observation, though, I think, is what to do with it as a, in terms of design <laughs> advice. Um, it would be a bit unpleasant to say to people, well, you just don't think hard enough about what you're doing, so all your interfaces from now on are going to be really, really awkward to manipulate. Um, some people have gone down that route, actually. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm pleased to report this little bit of work that, uh, has influenced some people, and they've suggested... Uh, unpleasant interfaces in situations, for example, which are safety-critical or where learning is maximally important. So an instructional interface one might imagine adding a burden to. Kenton and I were a bit more hesitant than that in recommending uh, a practical output from this research. Uh, With Steve Chambers, I explored one idea which I think might have some legs, and I'll show you it here. Uh, We called it the look-ahead interface, uh, and what happens with this interface is that you, you get a little window in which you can type as many numbers as you like and then say go, and it will whiz through and make the transformation of the whole set. So you could sit there and type 52731, and all the tiles would move round. Now, depending on the responsiveness of the particular uh, machine for the particular task, this might be just about as quick as the quick interface. In fact, it might be quicker. And, in fact, it behaves like the slow interface, the high-cost interface. So I think that the idea that's seeded here of an interface which deliberately cheapens look-ahead might be the way of learning a practical lesson from that uh, dramatic experiment. Um, Actually, one other thing it gives you is a little bit of data that you can't get very easily in any other way, which is the extent to which people look ahead per trial. Uh, and I think this is quite nice. They get better and better at looking ahead. Um, it's not just that they get better and better at solving the puzzle. They're, they're, um, their memory, uh, it's easier to look ahead when you become more skilled with the transformations of the puzzle. Okay, I'm going to report um, two more experiments that are very much in the same mold as that eight-puzzle experiment. Experiments which show that Um, if you can do something to hold up people's tendency to overact, uh, then you can improve their learning and performance. And when I've done that, I'm going to sit back and reflect on what that means for the theory of learning. Uh, Here's uh, an example of exploratory learning of an interactive device, work done by Carol Trudell. This is um, an Exact simulation of a particular Timex sport watch. It has only four buttons on the watch, and the simulation has another couple of buttons time, a time button and a start the experiment button. But the, the watch has four buttons, uh, and yet it embeds a lot of function. This is quite a commonplace design for these very small interactive devices, I think, to load functionality onto very few actions. Um, But it makes them quite difficult to learn. What people in our experiment had to do was what everyone uh, who gets a device like this does, throw away the instruction manual and start trying to figure out what on earth is going on. Um, uh, And let me just report two conditions of the experiment. In one condition, free exploration for 20 minutes after which you're tested in a variety of ways. I think the most interesting way we tested people was by giving them particular goals, like program the watch so that the time appears is four hours, ten minutes later than shown at the moment. And then we gave them a device to do that on, which measured the number of errors, the number of departures they made from the correct route. Then the second condition, we had some pilot data about how many times people would press the button in 20 minutes, And it was about 400. So in the second condition, we said, well, you can have 20 minutes or 200 key presses, whichever you run out of first. So we budgeted them to half as much interaction with the watch. Their only resource for learning about the watch is interacting with it. But one group can only interact with it half as much. And of course, they're the group that learns better. Massively better, actually. In those tests, they made one-sixth as many errors as the group who could do what they wanted. So um, I suppose what I'm saying here is that the the massive interactivity of modern devices fools people into a trial-and-error method when they'd be better off being more reflective. And uh, for the moment, I'm leaving it open Is exactly what the design lessons are from that. Well, although I made that joke about people throwing away the, um, the manual, uh, it's not always the case that you throw away the manual. Sometimes you try and learn a procedure from the instructions. Here's an experiment by Jeffrey Duggan uh, on learning procedures from instructions. Um, this, one of the nice things about this experiment, I think, is that what we got people to do is program a video recorder. <laughs> <laughs> It's easy to recruit people to do an experiment like this. We're going to ridicule your ability to learn to program a video recorder. Um, And here's, again, a simulation on a computer screen of a real video recording system. I think it's a Toshiba, but I can't remember. I beg your pardon. Um, And what's happened here is that you've got a, a model of the remote control set. On the computer screen is what would appear on the TV screen, And also on the computer screen is what would appear in the manual for this procedure. Now let me make some general points about learning procedures from instructions here. You've got the instructions written down. You've got the device, uh, and you're trying to learn how to do the task that the procedure describes. What you've got a choice about here is interleaving, reading the next step and doing the next step. Uh, You might decide to move your eyes a lot, let's say, and read a step, press the video plus button, do it. Read the next step, do it. Read the next step, do it. Or you might be a little bit more ambitious and read a couple of steps ahead and do them. A couple of steps ahead and do them. And actually, you can see there's a common theme here. You're likely to learn the procedure better, we reasoned if you take that latter option and chunk the steps a little bit. Because you're putting a higher load on memory, you're engaged in actually some more transfer-appropriate processing is the jargon from psychology. You're modeling better the uh, situation that you want to model, which is being able to do the task without the procedure at all, just consulting your memory. You model that better if you have more steps in memory at a time. And indeed, in one of Jeff's first experiments, we tested exactly that comparison. Follow, give people the steps, five steps at a time versus one step at a time, and they'll learn better five steps at a time. Uh, but in this experiment that I want to dwell on a little more, uh, we made a more subtle, I think a very subtle uh, change to the interface which encouraged this more reflective procedure following. Uh, and what we did is we contrasted this situation uh, where the cost of getting the next instruction is really just an eye movement with a high cost uh, situation where the instructions uh, were hidden until you clicked on a button and when the instructions appeared uh, the remote control disappeared until you clicked on another button so heck it's just two mouse clicks actually rather than two eye movements um, but it makes all the difference the people in this condition, who are in a sense having to walk across the room to pick up the manual, walk back to the, uh, the remote control, they learn the procedures a lot better than the other people. So let me, uh, let me pause my raking uh, and reflect on, on those few phenomena. Looking back on those last few examples, um, what I want to claim actually is that Uh, Although I think the cover story in each case is quite simple, I think they do challenge design ideas. And furthermore, I think they challenge conventional cognitive accounts of skill acquisition. Um, The standard theory of uh, skill acquisition uh, in the sort of computational uh, side of cognitive science is the theory of learning by doing, in which uh, problem-solving steps are compiled into memories for what to do, essentially. Um, what those experiments show is that sometimes completely contrary to that theory uh, performance and learning are in direct competition and you can only learn very well if you inhibit your performance goals, if you don't try and do the thing as quickly as possible but rather reflect on it so uh, I've tried to uh, call it the theory of learning by not doing hasn't caught on that title Um <laughs> So, I want to make another uh, point now about uh, what I perceive as a weakness in cognitive science. And it's, it's a deeper one than that weakness in the theory of learning by doing. All the tasks I've shown you so far... far hi, Mark. Welcome. You've got a few minutes left. Um, all the tasks I've shown you so far have been people trying to achieve goals. Uh, well, yes, you might say, surely that's what, that's what behavior is. Um, and, in fact, that is the assumption of uh, cognitive science, and it's the assumption of folk psychology. When we try to dis- explain other people's behavior, or animals' behavior, we do it by attributing goals to them and beliefs. and Well, beliefs and desires are the way the philosophers describe it. It's belief, desire, psychology. If you want to... Uh, ask the question, answer the question, why did the chicken cross the road? You'll say, well, to get to the other side. And he believed that on the other side there was some grain, let's say. People act according to their beliefs so as to accomplish their desires. Uh, but actually, I, in recently, I've begun to appreciate that not all human activity fits very well into that schema even though it seems extraordinarily general Um, so in particular um, this might seem at first glance like a silly example when you give up doing something it can hardly be a goal directed decision if you're trying to solve a problem and getting nowhere and you decide to ditch it how are we to explain that in terms of your accomplishing a goal Um, Actually, uh, I have a program of research that I've just begun. Uh, Jeff and I have submitted a paper last week on how people decide to give up a problem. But I'm not going to talk about that today. I I want to make a broader point, which is that some some, um, tasks have goals which are so sort of indefinite or ill-defined that you're always uh, giving them up, as it were. Um, Paul Valéry, the uh, French poet said that poems uh, are never completed, they're only abandoned. And I think that's true of some cognitive activities. Let's take simple learning tasks. Let's say you're trying to find out more about cognitive science. When do you stop reading those books? You don't have a particular goal in mind. I've learned everything about you. That's completely unrealistic. You just have to monitor your progress and give up when you think your progress is flattened out. You have to be monitoring your accumulation of stuff, a currency of interest, rather rather than your accomplishment of a goal state. And I think that distinction between accumulation and accomplishment is a very important distinction between human activities uh, and tasks. Uh, And I want to describe a little bit of work in that spirit. as I said, learning it seems to me is a particularly important example here. Um, and here's an experiment that Will Reader and I did, which I know some of you have heard about before. You give people a particular learning, well, a particular, but one of these inexact learning goals. You've got um, you've got 15 minutes. You say to the participant, to learn as much as you can about the human heart, so as to write an essay about it. Ooh, I'm, I'm slipping. My gown's slipping. Um, and you put them in front of a model browser that you, can, that you instrument so you can see exactly what they do from minute to minute. Uh, so here's, here's a situation you might be in if you're a participant in this experiment. There are four texts there, and they're all helpfully called The Heart. Uh, and you've only got 15 minutes to learn as much as you can about The Heart to write an essay. Uh, and it would take you... 15 minutes to read any one of these texts in detail. It seemed to us, and I hope that you'll be convinced, that this is a reasonable model of a situation that students and academics are in all the time these days. Way too much to read. Uh, and so you have to somehow try and intelligently manage your time across the multiple sources. How might you do that? Well, here's how two people in one of our experiments did it very exactly. These are, these are, these are full, full behavioral protocols of which page of text a person was looking at at every second of the experiment. So, if we look at the first, the top participant, participant 28, what that graph is showing us is that for them, The texts were ordered on the menu on the left-hand side of the screen with text C at the top, text A, then text D, then text B. Uh, And I might say to you, actually, that text A was written for primary school children about the heart. Text D was written for medical students. And text B and C were intermediate-level texts, probably written for most of our students in this experiment, actually. Anyway, what happens for participant 28 is, is as you can see there, the pages are colour-coded. They read quite a bit of text C, but they only spend 150 seconds on it. Then they look very quickly, quickly at text A, very, very quickly at text D and B, and decide, oh, well, from what I've seen, A is the one I want to study, and then spend a considerable period, well, a considerable period given the experimental limit, not a considerable period, really, reading that text, um, whereas Participant 6 doesn't behave like that at all. What Participant 6 does is start reading text D and has already spent half their budget of time before they even know what the other texts look like. Uh, these, these are the two ideal strategies, pretty much the only strategies we observe. Let's call Participant 28's strategy Sampling. What sampling involves is quickly assessing the alternatives and then choosing among them. And that's a behavior that's been observed in animals foraging in certain situations. If you put a great tit in a cage with a hopper of food that's uh, nourishing and a hopper of food that's less nourishing, what they will do is go 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 quickly back and forth between the hoppers and then eventually settle on the more nourishing hopper sampling. Satisfying is a completely different strategy. It involves doing whatever you're doing at the moment as long as it's good enough. If it's not good enough, change and do something else. So you start reading the text that you happen to open first. At least this is what we think is underlying this protocol. Uh, And if the amount of, let's say, information gain or satisfaction or entertainment is above threshold, keep reading it. If it drops below, move to the next thing. Now, we've done loads of experiments like this, actually, and it turns out that satisficing is by far the more common strategy. And I think it's an interesting strategy because it's very like uh, the strategy of... um, um, It's very like the the patch-leaving strategies that have been studied in animal foraging. So... um, the, the participants that are, that are, are acting in this uh, experimental setup are um, behaving not like chickens crossing the road to achieve a particular goal. They're behaving like birds flying from tree to tree in an orchard, eating berries and deciding when to leave one tree to move on to the next. So people aren't chickens; they're uh, whatever birds those are. Um, uh, one final one final thing about reading. I missed that out. Reading is another case where actually we choose as intelligent humans to leave some of our memory in the world. Uh, If you study people, um, people after they've read a book, they'll remember some of the stuff in the book, but they'll also remember where the stuff is in the book. And that means if they forget the stuff a little bit, they can look it up again. They rely, again, on this external memory, although they can only rely on that external memory very well to the extent that they remember this route to it, that they can remember, for example, where information is on a page. I'm sure you you can think back to situations, especially perhaps where you were revising for exams or perhaps sitting in an exam, worse, where you can remember where the fact is on the page, but you just can't remember what it is. Um, And what you need is to support people to go back to that fact in the world, and if you're going to design systems, well, let's imagine you're. Um, let's imagine you're designing. You've had the idea that people might want to read text on a miniature handheld device. Strange idea, um, but you want to support their learning from those devices. Well, what you shouldn't let them do is scroll, because if they scroll through the text, it completely disrupts this information about where stuff is in the text. So that's a little example of um, a piece of design advice coming from a study of people in this cognitive spirit. Now, just because I've made a bet, I'm going to finish here with an eccentric... I've never given a talk in a gown before, so I'm feeling a little bit eccentric. I'm going to finish with, believe it or not, a poem. Uh, This is a poem that looks back, as my talk has done, Uh, on my research career to some extent, but actually back a little further to when I was a PhD student. And I like to think it makes some of the points that I've made in the talk um, about the interplay between people and their machines, uh, and it makes it in a rather fanciful way. So forgive me, but as I said, it's a dare. Um, It's a poem called Photocopier. The hub of the administrative wheel, no more. Its function so ungreen. Its process so industrial, the blinding hazard beneath the screen, the dreaded paper jam. <laughs> no glamour duplicating the expense claim or multiplying a memo. But I remember staying behind alone, late evenings in the office become a dark room. My palm heel on the spine's gold lettering, I press a heavy bound volume to the glass, one double page at a time. Believing the rhythm of the work, the interplay of human and machine will make the ideas my own. Thank you for your attention.